0: Um, Turning your Bibles to First Peter chapter four, 1 Peter chapter four, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 uh, verses seven through 11. Uh, let me ask if you're able uh, that you stand as we read God's word together. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would teach us. This is Your Word. Use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. So when you go to the doctor, if you go to the doctor, you may be one of those, if you go to the doctor, when you go to the doctor, we'll assume you do, when you go to the doctor kind of for your regular checkup, um, there's some important information that he will give you. There are sort of important numbers that you'll need to know that he's or she is going to be sort of looking out for, you know, things like blood pressure. Uh, cholesterol, um, heart rate—you know—all that sort of stuff is going to matter, and you're going to get this sort of range, and they're going to go, ooh, you know—they'll see a number, they'll measure something, be like, ooh, you know, the ooh is bad. Um, they'll—they'll they'll give you the, well, it's kind of borderline because you're in the range, but you're kind of high on the range, and you might need to kind of—you get these these numbers, you get this information from the doctor that tells you whether you are physically healthy or not. And the other thing I've noticed is um, that what we define as physical, physically healthy is in a lot of ways dependent on our age and, and where we are sort of in our, in our growth and maturity. Because quite honestly, um, what the pediatrician would tell Will um, would probably not be what, what a doctor would tell me. Uh, the way you would measure Will's health and, and physical, you know, is he physically healthy well, the pediatrician would tell Will, yes. And the same doctor would look at me and go, see, you've got to stop doing that. You've got to quit growing that way. And the hands go this way. <laughs> and, and it has to do with, uh, there is a sort of standard, a, a measure for our health, but it also depends a little bit or, on where you are in your growth, where you are in your maturity. Well, that's exactly what Peter gives us in these verses. He gives us a, not our physical health, right? There, there's, no, there's no information here about cholesterol or blood sugar or any of that sort of information. He's, he's giving us a way to monitor our spiritual health. He's giving us a way to monitor the health of, and actually in many ways it's really a congregation more than it is the individual, but a way to measure the spiritual health of the congregation in light of, where you are in your growth. And he doesn't mean where, for example, we at Grace Covenant are in, you know, hey, we're in a new building, we got a new sign up, we got, you know. What he means is where we are in the grand scheme of redemptive history. And so Peter gives us a... A way to measure our spiritual health. Notice first off in in the beginning of verse 7, he starts with a little bit of news. And it is the news that the end of all things is at hand. And, And that's what I mean by where you are in your growth. Where you are in the stage of development. Not you as an individual, but us And for that matter, the world, the church, big C in the grand scheme of redemptive history. Because here's the thing. I don't think Peter means that he thinks Jesus is coming back soon. I don't think that's what Peter means here. For one thing, this is 64-ish A.D., Jesus has, the the earthly ministry of Jesus ended roughly 30 ish years ago. And Peter and the other disciples were told that many of you will still be alive when the temple is destroyed. That hasn't happened yet in 64. In fact, it won't happen until 70 AD. And so Peter knows that there are signs to be looking for. Christ won't come back at least until the temple's been destroyed because we were told that some of us would still be around for that. So that He knows there are markers, there's signs, there's indicators as to um, things that have to be accomplished before Christ can come back and before He can return. Besides, if... The New Testament writers thought Jesus was coming back really, really soon. But they wrote that and were mistaken. How do we know they weren't mistaken on other issues like sexuality and gender issues? I don't think the New Testament writers thought he was coming all that soon, they knew he was coming. They didn't necessarily think it was in their immediate future. Besides, the word end here, it's not a chronology word. It's not a word that has to do with time. It's the Greek word telos, which has to do with purpose, or aim, or intent. In other words, everything that redemptive history has been aiming for, is now everything that that the history of mankind from from Genesis three until Peter writes, and for that matter beyond, even the things written here. In fact, the the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us in chapter one that we're in the last days. And what Peter means is that the aim of everything that history has been traveling towards. The fulfillment, the, the target, the, the purpose for which redemptive history has been unfolding is now. And the now is Christ's earthly ministry has been completed. He's ascended to the throne room of heaven and the only thing left, the only thing remaining... Is the end that 's all that's in the grand scheme of of redemptive history, the only event yet to happen is the end is Christ coming back and so peter 's writing to remind us what what many throughout the the, the centuries have said and, and I think I, I, I prayed it just a few minutes ago that really much of the Christian life is to be lived with one foot here and one foot there. One foot on this earth and one foot in the new heavens and the new creation. The new earth. The the, the earth that is to come. Because bege- Peter begins this this test of our spiritual health by reminding us that we are in the last days. We are that everything that redemptive history needs or demands has has happened except for the return of Christ. And so the question is, how do we live in this world with one foot in that world? What does a, a spiritually healthy church look like in light of the fact that we are in this, this pinnacle of history, this, this last era of, of redemptive history? Because you notice the very next word, the end of all things is at hand, therefore. See now, if you're prince, not a prince, if you're prince, the musician, and you're convinced that the Lord's got a bomb and we could all die any day. And that the world's going to end in the year 2000. What do you do? Well, you party like it's 1999. That was, that was his song. That was his sort of view of things, right? The world's going to end, so we're going to party like it's 1999. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way the, the unregenerate, unredeemed, unrepentant mind thinks Peter actually changes things a little bit. So yeah, the end of all things is at hand. Yes, we're in that last remaining era of redemptive history. Therefore, live like this. Therefore, be like this. Therefore, this is what a spiritually healthy church will look like. A church that... that learns to keep one foot here and one foot there. We've, we've mentioned that Peter's writing to aliens. He's writing to people who are exiles in their own home town. The only reason they can be exiles, the only way we can call them exiles in their own hometown is if they actually belong somewhere else. They're residents of another place. And, What Peter means is we're residents of the world that is to come. We live in two zip codes. We live in three, five, six, one, one, three, four, take your whichever one works for you. Some of you may not even be one something. You may be something different. But we also live in in whatever the zip code is for the new creation. I'm guessing it's all sevens. I just made that up on the fly. <laughs> but what does spiritual health look like? Well, he gives us these several sort of indicators of health. And the first, verse 7, is prayer. Now, notice he gives a little instruction on the front end of of prayer. Before he gets to praying, he says be self-controlled and sober-minded. And and sober-minded is literally the Greek word it compares sober versus drunk. It's that distinction. It's are you clear in your thinking? Are, is your mind straight? Are you are you remaining sort of controlled over yourself or are you being controlled by someone or something else? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Some of your versions, uh, the NIV, I think it is, uh, has so that you can pray. And does Peter mean if you're not thinking of heaven, you can't pray? Like, like you shouldn't be allowed to pray if you're not thinking of heaven? Does he, does he mean you like literally can't? Like you're unable to actually pray? I don't think that's what he means. That's not his point. That's not where he's headed here. His point is, how does one foot here and one foot there change your prayer list? How does one foot here and one foot there affect the language of your prayers? We... um we all have our lists, right? You you have your list of things that you pray for. You pray for people who are sick. Uh, you pray for people who have who have COVID and, and have it bad and, and or badly, I guess, who uh, are, are sort of suffering under it more than than others have. Um you pray for people who who are in the hospital and, and facing major significant surgery. You pray for people who are in the hospital and facing not so major, not so significant surgery. And we pray for their recovery. We pray for their health. We pray that, that, that through it all, everything would be fine and that they would be you know, back here again next Sunday. But one foot here and, and one foot there changes that. Because in reality, God deciding now is the time for this person to die and come and be with me, that is healing. It's not the healing we think of. It's not always the healing we want. But it's actually better healing than we were asking for. Because then they're right from all their sin and sorrow, we sang a few minutes ago. Peter says look if we if we remain self-controlled and sober minded clear-headed in our thinking for the sake of our prayers if the end of all things is at hand then that changes how we pray it affects the way we pray for the things that we pray for maybe maybe our praying is a little too focused on this life and a little less focused on the world that is to come? Are we praying for healing with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth? There's a second um, measure, indicator of our spiritual health, verse 8, and it is for one another above all keep loving one another earnestly and it's it's that constant perpetual present tense keep on loving one another and do so earnestly do so fervently eagerly why because love covers a multitude of sins now you might think to yourself well Peter's referring to my sins. And because Jesus has covered my sins, I should love other people. Jesus has loved me enough to uh, to atone for my sins. I should love other people. That's not what he's, he's suggesting that the way we should love each other is in a way that covers the sins of those around us. Yet the reality is, when you live in a family together, you're going to offend each other. When you you put enough people, and by enough people I mean one, under a roof, that person will sin. Now, it just so happens it may not bother anybody. You put two people under that same roof, and the sin in the building just amplified. When you put a church body together the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will sin against each other. We will offend one another. And do we need to get caught up in arguing and fussing and fighting, or can we love one another in a way that love covers those wrongs? He doesn't mean we're atoning for each other's sins. He simply means that we're not keeping a record of each other's sins. Imagine a church fellowship where each other's sins and 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 offenses are covered in love, the way makeup covers blemishes. You got a scar, you got a spot, you got a, a mark, you got something you don't like. A little bit of makeup, and nobody sees it. What if our love covered each other like that? We take the scar. We cover it over in love and nobody else notices. Love covers a multitude of sins. There's a third indicator of our spiritual health in verse 9. He tells us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling uh, you, you realize travel in the first century Roman world was um, a dangerous deal it a dangerous affair as you know um, the Hooker household it's kind of that time of year where we're having conversations about summer vacation and, and where are we go and what are we doing and, and you know the last uh, couple of years, a couple of times maybe three times now since we've lived here we've driven to Colorado um, and we're trying to figure out okay do we go to Colorado again do we do something different um, we always we drove from here to Amarillo, fourteen, fifteen hours, whatever. Spent the night there, and then you had a much shorter trip the rest of the way. Of course, we can drive with air conditioning, toting all our stuff. Imagine having to walk, and, and imagine the hotel in Amarillo not being so safe. Being a dangerous place, or well, for that matter, Amarillo. I wouldn't even get outside of Alabama before it was time to rest and and spend the night somewhere. Hotels were dangerous. Hotels were not safe. They were frequently sort of um, um, uh, hotbeds, I guess, of of various illicit activity. They weren't the kind of place that you really should... Stop and spend the night, and so travelers would would often depend on Christians to actually open their homes and say look i 've got i 've got a room stay here you 'll be safe you 'll have a, a nice comfy bed uh, i I can fix you supper oh you 've already had supper great i 'll fix you breakfast before you leave and and then you can be on your way and and everything 's safe and um and and we as believers have opened our homes. To others around us? Are we marked by hospitality? Are we marked out as people who open our homes and, and welcome other people into our lives? Are we caring for the needs of others as though we were doing it for Christ Himself? There's another indicator, a fourth indicator of spiritual health in verse 10. And it's using our gifts, you know, that every believer, uh, every believer is given spiritual gifts. Now, sometimes I think we may make a little more out of it than the Bible does. Have you ever noticed that you read through whatever list of spiritual gifts you can find and they don't match? Like there's no like definitive list one time I ordered um, a, a spiritual gifts inventory book, we were sort of examining some stuff at a church I was in. And in order to place the the order and to, to order the spiritual gifts inventory booklet, I had to choose which one I wanted. The five, the seven, the nine, the twenty two, Like, which spiritual gift inventory do you want? If that doesn't prove the point, there's no definitive list. And you can read lists or something that sounds like lists in about four or five different passages in Scripture. They do seem to all have a couple of things in common. One is that there are really sort of two categories of spiritual gifts. Some are word gifts, some are service gifts, some are words, some are deeds, some are um, this by the way, is reflected in even uh, the the government structure that the, that scripture lays out, and elders and deacons, word and deed, ministry, and Peter sort of unfolds that for us in. Verses ten and eleven that, that there's some who speaks and so speak oracles of God's oracles of God. Some who serve and do so in the strength God provides. There are gifts that are that are that are word teaching, preaching sort of gifts, and there are word there are gifts that are service and and deed ministry kinds of gifts. And part of the point I think part of the implication is that just reminds us that none of us have all of them, and therefore we need each other. We're incomplete in and of ourselves. And so that's why we need the body. We need the gifts of our brothers and sisters around us. So one of the things all those lists seem to have in common is they divide the kinds of gifts into basically two kinds, word and deed. The other thing they seem to have in common is this. Those gifts are not for you. See, we do the, oh, that's not my gift, so I'm not obligated, and we turn and walk away. Or we think we have a gift that we really don't have. Or we really want a gift that we really don't have. But these passages tell us, and Peter tells us, the gifts that you've been given aren't yours. They belong to Christ and to His church. They're given to be used for other people. Whether word or service, it doesn't matter. They're given for the good of the church fellowship. And notice verse 10, uh, there's a word you need to, to notice as good stewards of God's varied grace. That varied grace um, carries with it almost the picture of a kaleidoscope. right? You, you turn the thing and you get all these different cool colors and make it spin and does all kinds of really cool things. It's that kind of but we're stewards. You know, the steward doesn't own the stuff he uses. He uses it and he uses it because the master who actually owns it has told him to use it, but he doesn't know nothing. He merely is the one who takes his master's gifts and or master's stuff and uses them to serve other people. That's us. We're stewards of His grace. We don't own the the graces. We don't own the gifts. We are merely stewards of them. So these gifts remind us that we depend on each other. These gifts remind us that they are uh, to be used for the good of the church of the church fellowship. That that for that matter, a church can't operate or function with just one person doing everything because no one person here at Grace Covenant is that complete. So we need each other. You know those times you, you visit a church and, and you get frustrated because or, or you, you walk into a church and you evaluate it asking the question, what can this church do for me? This passage says we should probably do the John Kennedy thing. Ask not what this church can do for me, but ask what I can do for this church. That's what our gifts are for. There's a final indicator of spiritual health. And it answers the question, why? And we find it in verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Are we seeking the honor and glory of Christ? You know, we, um, you maybe noticed the sign got put up yesterday. Thank you to those of you who have worked on getting that sign up um, over the last however long. Uh, it looks good. I like the way it looks. It's, it's very visible. You can actually see it from the light back there at 31. Um, but yet it's not really like overwhelmingly, you know, it's, it's, I, I like it. Of course, you put a sign in front of a church because you want people to know that there's a church there. Like you want to call attention to the fact that there is a, a, a church fellowship, there's a congregation that meets in this building. And so you put a sign up to, 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 to catch attention, right, to draw attention. Sometimes I wonder if that isn't how we use our gifts. As as sort of like a sign that says, look at me. To gain attention for ourselves. Like we use our gifts, the way we put that sign up in front of the church building, to, to call attention to ourselves. That's not what Peter says. Here. Are you using your gifts to the honor and glory of God? Of Christ? Is Christ exalted? Do our gifts tell each other and the world around us that Christ alone is king and head of His church? Or are we using them because we want to call more attention to ourselves? Peter reminds us that Christ is exalted. To Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. May it be that Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church is marked out as people who pray, recognizing that we have one foot in this life and one that is in the life to come who love each other and cover each other's sins, showing hospitality to one another, using our gifts all so that the kingdom of Christ might be advanced. <coughs> do we want Grace Covenant to grow? Yes, we do. That's part of the reason there's a sign out front. But our desire isn't to make a name for Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. Our desire is to make a name for Christ. In Athens, in Athens and around the globe, and everywhere in between. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us such a thing as a a spiritual checkup, um, a way to monitor our spiritual health given to us, Um, Yes, from Peter's pen, but from you, O Holy Spirit. You have inspired these words, you've preserved them, and we pray that you would now use them in the life of this particular church fellowship. Would you remind us daily, regularly, that the end of all things is at hand, that we've reached that last great era of redemptive history and are anticipating only the return of Christ. May we even speed that day by taking the gospel to those groups of people who have not heard it. We know that Christ can't return until the gospel has been proclaimed to every people group on earth. May we speed his return By participating in that mission. And Father we pray that that in all the things we do here at Grace Covenant. That Christ would be exalted. We pray all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen.